Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John. We are in the 15th chapter and we are looking at verses 18 through the first half of verse 4 in chapter 16. And so again, if you have your Bibles with you, let me encourage you to turn there and follow along as I now read from God's holy and inspired word. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first, because I was with you. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. In the final hours that Jesus had with his disciples, we know that he offered them hope and promise and peace, as well as this sober expectation. Any Christian who takes it upon themselves to convince others that they should follow Christ, for to do so will bring them a long life filled with health, wealth, and happiness, should read this portion of Jesus' discourse twice a day until they stop making their false claims. For what Jesus states here and elsewhere is the sober reality of what it means to truly follow Jesus. This is a declaration of an inescapable spiritual truth. The world is going to hate you if you are a known disciple of Christ and there is no getting around it. As Jesus says here, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This hatred that the world has for Christ is universal. 
Because as Jesus stated early in his ministry, people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. There is nowhere in this world that you will not find persecution of Christians to one degree or another. There is a Christian organization called Open Doors, which sprang from the ministry of Brother Andrew, better known years ago as God's smuggler, because of his personal efforts of smuggling Bibles to believers behind the Iron Curtain. And Open Doors monitors persecution of Christians, and they state without equivocation that Christian persecution around the world is one of the biggest human rights issues of this era. They maintain a watch list of the top 50 countries where the persecution of Christians is either very high or extreme. And as you might imagine, they are primarily scattered across Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. What is amazing is that for that to be true, it means that Jesus' disciples are working in some of the most dangerous places on earth, sharing the love of Christ with all those who have ears to hear with little regard for their personal safety. In fact, it is in some of these top 50 countries known for their persecution of Christians that the body of Christ is growing most rapidly, testifying to the perseverance of the saints there as well as the faithfulness of the Spirit of God bringing many to faith in Christ in spite of the persecution. Now we might wonder why there is such hatred for the disciples of Christ and Jesus answers that question in part in verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. In essence, the reason the world hates Christ is because they themselves do not yet know him, nor do they know the God who sent him. And because they know not the Father nor the Son, they are living in their original state of spiritual rebellion against the King of all kings. Now, we have said before that there are only two kinds of people in this world, those who are regenerate and those who are not. Those upon whom God's Spirit has fallen and they have responded in faith to Christ and those who have not. And those who have not are inherently antagonistic to Christ and to the things of Christ because those holy things are antithetical to them. When the governing principles in a person's life are the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, they will not be attracted to Christ who calls men and women to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. So when the world hears believers making the case for Christ, which stands in opposition to whatever religious or secular ideology they follow, They react negatively and seek to stifle or eradicate that message for fear that it will convict their own hearts. The Apostle Paul declares that the gospel has this impact upon these two kinds of people. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ 
always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. In other words, when the body of Christ is true to her calling of carrying the gospel wherever they go, there are those with ears to hear who receive the gospel as it is intended, as words of life, and by the power of the Holy Spirit they receive that word, and by faith they come to Christ, the author of life, and they believe on His name. But there are others upon whose ears the same gospel falls. And what they hear is contrary to their ideology. And they react with animosity and hatred. Because what they hear spells death for the existence they have carved out for themselves. What they hear threatens the way of life they most value. What they hear amounts to an end to the things they most cherish. And so they stand opposed to the gospel and do all within their power to eliminate the threat. So when believers, by their words and by their actions, are identified as followers of Jesus, they should expect opposition and perhaps even more. Jesus tells his disciples this for one simple reason, to keep them from falling away. In other words, the great threat to the disciples was not the world and what the world might dish out to them, The threat was not imprisonment. The threat was not being flogged or stoned or thrown to the lions. It was not beheading or crucifixion. The great threat was not that Nero might dip them in oil and turn them into human torches for his gardens, which he did at one point in time. The great threat was that they might buckle under the persecution and suddenly be scandalized. That's the word that Jesus uses here. That they might be scandalized by the name of Christ and fall away and become apostate. Do you remember back in chapter 6? I'm sure you do. Following the feeding of the 5,000 and how all of those quote-unquote disciples of Jesus followed Him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and when they caught up with Him, Jesus began to challenge their motives for following Him. And He began to talk about Himself as the bread of life and how important it would be that they ate of His flesh and drank of His blood. And they were not able to digest what He was saying. And they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And we are told that they took offense at His words. And the same Greek word, skandalizo, is used there as it is here. It means to cause to sin. And then we are told, towards the end of chapter 6, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. By telling these disciples of the trouble that will surely come, Jesus is preparing them so they will not fall away, so they will not be caused to sin because of His name. And this preparation accomplished exactly what Jesus intended. 
For when the disciples were arrested later and beaten for disobeying the religious authorities who told them to stop teaching in the name of Jesus, they did not stop. But they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And when the deacon, Stephen, became the first disciple to be martyred by stoning, the disciples did not fold up their tent and call it a day. When the church was being pursued beyond Jerusalem by none other than Saul of Tarsus, they did not cease to believe in what they knew to be true, that Jesus was the Son of God who was raised from the dead on the third day. And when James, the brother of John, was cut down by the sword under the direction of King Herod, the disciples did not recant. And when Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle, and began to receive what he once dispensed. He did not deny the grace of God that had been given to him on the road to Damascus. He took the lashes and went on to the next town, beaten and bloodied, but deeply aware that this is what Jesus forecast as the reaction of a world that was living in denial of Christ's sovereignty. Now, in case there might be doubt about what Jesus was warning, he says in verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And the Greek word there for service is translated in other places as worship. Now, this may be the ultimate trouble that will face any Believer, when they are confronted by a world that is able to justify their murder, sincerely believing that what they're doing is morally right because as they understand it, God commands it. There are believers who are suffering even now at the hands of Islamic fundamentalists, at the hands of Hindu fundamentalists, even at the hands of Buddhist fundamentalists, and the motivations behind these persecutions are seen as totally righteous because they believe their God has commanded that heretics be obliterated. This was the same justification that gripped the heart of Saul of Tarsus when he was pursuing Christians on God's behalf in the first century. But do you know this is the same justification that has caused Christians to be martyred by others, by other Christians, people coming in the name of Christ. The conflict between Catholics and Protestants before and during the Reformation has no shortage of victims who were deemed to be heretics by the others. There are shameful moments over the past many centuries when those who sincerely believed they were offering a spiritual service unto God took the lives of others. Beloved, there is no justification for such capital punishment on behalf of the God of the Bible. We must never forget Paul's admonition that we are to never avenge ourselves because vengeance belongs to God and that he alone will judge his people. But here's my question. Based upon the lives that we are currently living, what are the chances that the world will consider us enough of a threat that persecution will find us? 
Now, please do not misunderstand what I'm asking here. I am not suggesting that we go out looking to be persecuted. I'm not suggesting that believers look for opportunities to stir up unnecessary trouble. Any Christian can go out and act like a jerk, get punched in the nose, and claim they were persecuted for the sake of Christ. As Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I'm also not arguing that unless we are persecuted for our faith, that our faith must be illegitimate. God's purposes are such that he uses whatever forms of trial he deems most appropriate in the perfection of the saints. What I'm asking is, are we living in such a biblical way, so obedient to the commands of Christ, that the world would consider us a threat to the God they serve? Does our testimony to the truth cause them to be so uncomfortable, so convicted, that they want to silence us? Because you see, the temptation for us is to be silent so as to avoid any trouble or persecution. The temptation is to live an undercover Christian life that is so under the radar that no one outside of the church even knows that we follow Christ as Savior and Lord. The temptation is to hide our light under a bushel so that no one else can see it and thus never have a reason to consider us dangerous. But in this way, we run the risk of a kind of silent scandalizo, a falling away, that even we fail to recognize. The first disciples were not persecuted because they were silent. They were not persecuted because they failed to demonstrate the power of Christ in the healing of the lame man in the temple courts, for example. They were not persecuted because they were locked away in the upper room and no one knew where they were. They were persecuted because they were boldly making an announcement about what God had accomplished in Christ. And they never stopped offering this testimony wherever they went. They looked for opportunities to tell others about Christ, and they never avoided the truth of what He had done on their behalf. And you see, it is this fidelity and this allegiance to Christ's great commission that set them on a collision course with the world. What I wonder is whether or not we are individually and collectively on such a collision course that the world will take notice and bring their resources to bear against us? Or have we developed a kind of spiritual detente or peace treaty with the world that allows us to tell ourselves that we're true to Christ all the while we play footsies with the world? Beloved, if we are living as Christ has called us to live, it will eventually result in our experiencing conflict with those who follow the God of this world. Several years ago now, I was asked to perform a wedding that was off campus. If you have ever attended a wedding that I've conducted, you know that it is scriptural. It is between one man and one woman, and I make no concessions for any other arrangement. This was clear in the 
ceremony that I conducted as I made known God's perspective on marriage and all was right with the world as far as I knew. It was only later in the evening during the wedding reception that I was approached by a man who began to take issue with me on the Christian understanding of marriage. Now, I could tell that he had visited the punch bowl with some frequency already, and he was looking for a fight. He was antagonistic and insulting, very much an embarrassment to his friends who were seeking to deflect and intervene. And when he began to raise his voice to the point that other guests began to take notice of the disturbance, Julie and I took our leave so this fellow would not ruin the new couple's party. We thanked our hosts, and as we left the venue, this fellow followed us outdoors onto the patio, and at one point he put his hand on my wife to keep us from retreating. Now, there have been moments in my life when I have been tempted to release a little godly wrath on a person. And this was one of those moments. And while I resisted and told him in no uncertain terms that placing his hands on my wife again would result in painful consequences, thankfully there were others who physically took hold of him and redirected him to a neutral corner to calm down and we made our way to the parking lot and headed home. It was only later that I learned that this fellow was gay, he was a New York attorney, that he was the leader of an LGBTQ legal organization that sought to advance their agenda wherever they could. And while I was tempted to knock him unconscious, I was glad that I resisted It's probably why I am still your pastor and not in jail. But I share that with you to say that our stand for Christ need not be some monumental event. It can be a simple wedding ceremony where we declare the truth of what God says about marriage. It might be that someone at the next table overhears our conversation with a Christian friend and does not like what we said and wants to make something of it out in the parking lot. It might be a Christian college student who is berated by a worldly professor who takes issue with that student's Christian worldview and threatens to fail that student unless they recant. It might involve a Christian florist or baker or photographer taking a stand that lands them in court for months and months and in some cases, even years. The point is that if we are being faithful to Christ, we should not be surprised when trial and tribulation come, for we are seen as a threat to the world and the God they serve. This is the Apostle Peter's point in his first letter that we read earlier in the service. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the firing trial when it comes upon to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And this is the promise that Jesus makes to his disciples in the upper room, is it not? 
They're not called upon to make this stand unequipped. They're going to be fortified by the Spirit of truth whom the Father sends, and this spiritual helper will bear witness about Jesus. You see, what you and I do not see when we are standing for Christ by our words and by our deeds is that the Spirit of Christ uses those words and deeds to send a message to the hearts of those who are paying attention. Some receive it and some reject it, as we have already noted, but there is power behind our words and deeds that we cannot measure, for it occurs on a spiritual level. But if we are faithful... And it turns out that we suffer for the sake of Christ. Peter says, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Some of you, when you took your seat today and you read the title of today's sermon, may have thought it a bit odd to call it, Oh, to be hated, as though this should be the desire of our heart. But when we understand it in the context of discipleship to Christ, I hope that you do understand that this should be our prayer. As Christians, we should not be in love with the worldliness of this place because our home is with Christ at the right hand of the Father. We are destined for a new heaven and a new earth that will not be ruled by the God of this world. This is why Paul writes to the Colossians, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. To be hated by the world is not a horrible thing for those who belong to Christ. It is a badge of honor, for it declares that we are truly servants of our Master. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me that we might pray for a moment this morning.